Good morning again, Lakeville Christian. Nice to see everyone this morning. It's a joy and a pleasure to be here worshiping with you again. I didn't expect to see you guys so soon, but it's nice to be here. I'm sorry to hear that Karen has COVID. That's terrible. Um, I work at the hospital. It seems like we're getting the numbers are ticking up again, but um, I'm hoping that it, it stays, you know, just cold at this point. So um, we'll keep her in prayer. But um, I, um, I, I know you guys have been in Romans, but we're going to take a break from Romans and we're going to go to the Gospel of John. So we are going to be in John chapter 1 this morning. And we're in John 1, John chapter 1, verses 43. And then before I forget, someone later today, just tell me what's going on on your website. I was on your website, and there were some pictures about, it looked like the Reformation you guys were enacting. There was a guy in a Pope costume in the back, and there was Pastor Dan in a costume up front. Sometime later, someone tell me what's going on. I can make assumptions about what you guys are up to, but I, I, don't, know, I don't know for sure, you know, so, <laughs> so that, was, that was cool. I like that you guys put that up on your website. Um, all right, so we are in John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51, and it's a text that I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, verses 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael uh, coming toward him and said, said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do, you, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray before we come to God's word this morning. Almighty and ever-living Lord, Majesty, power, and glory are yours. Lord, we have entered your presence to worship you this morning, and you are most worthy. We ask you to speak your words into our hearts, and I pray that you would send your Spirit, Lord, and teach us to cry out, Abba, Abba Father. Like, like children, Lord, draw us to yourself with reverence and confidence. Show us how to, how to love each other Lord, inspire us, Lord, please, with that zeal for your glory, so that your name will be honored, so that the goodness of your kingdom will be sought out. Let us put down our worldly interest and seek for the accomplishment of your will. I pray for the community here at Lakeville and this church body. Lord, oh Lord, that this remnant here would be a beacon of light that could not be hidden. Awaken your word in our hearts this morning. And when we have heard your word, I pray that we would consider your ways and we might delight in your decree. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified through, the, through, through your word. And, 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 and Lord, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Two years ago, uh, on sa a Saturday in late December, 
our family took a vacation. We packed our bags on December 26th, and we flew 1,800 miles south to an island called Antigua. Maybe you've been there. We, we got off the plane, and we made our way to the taxi, and we were alone in a Toyota diesel taxi van. And this is where we met our taxi driver, Imelda. Imelda was her name, and I noticed that Imelda was listening to gospel, gospel music, and she offered to shut it off for us. And, but we told her, hey, we like the music. Keep that music going. And, uh, and, and that actually, the next morning, Sunday, we were looking for a church to go to. And, uh, and so what did she do? Well, she invited us to her church. And it was decided that at 9.15 in the morning, she would pick us up at our resort and she would take us to church. Now, it may seem like a, a, a random occurrence to, to, to the outsider, but I have been praying for that. I've been praying that we could find a church to go to on that Sunday to worship. Um, I didn't understand it as random at all. We'll come back to that story later. Imelda shows up later. We enter the story here in the Gospel of John this morning, and the text, this, this text takes place early in the ministry of Jesus. We have Jesus starting to call his disciples, and on this day, Jesus intends to go to Galilee. And if you have your Bibles open in front of you, you'll see that it reads, it reads in verses 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, we don't know much about Philip and Nathaniel, much of what we learn about these men come from brief portraits like these. From verse 44, we see that Philip, Andrew, and Peter were from Bethsaida. Now, I want to make a special note about verses 43 in your text there in front of you. In verses 43, it reads, The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Now, there's, there's a charge there given by Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. Just two words, follow me. The Greek definition meaning to go after, to obey. Jesus is charging Philip to follow him as a disciple. And as a disciple, Philip would physically follow Jesus. He would, he would walk with him. He would talk with him. He would be taught by Jesus. Notice, though, Notice the limited amount of detail given to Philip there in, that, in those two words. Jesus doesn't give a lengthy exp- expression. He doesn't give a lengthy explanation. He doesn't say, now, Philip, I'm going to tell you exactly what your future is going to look like. This is what's going to happen. No, no, no. We see two words. Follow me. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the, uh, the books, the adventure books. Well, if you're my age, you remember them as when you were a kid. We had these adventure books. And the way they would work is that as you would read the book, you would follow, you would turn to one page, and it would tell you, you know, you would look at the pages, and every page would tell you, go to this page, go to this page. And if you want to follow this path, you turn to this page. The way that adventure works actually worked out is that we would peep our thumb in the page we were in, and then we would look ahead at the next page. You'd be like, oh, no, I don't want to go there. I need to make sure I'm not going to be eaten by monsters before I turn to that page. That's, see, Philip doesn't have that choice. Here, as well as with us, we're not given that ability. He, he doesn't give, Jesus doesn't give the specifics. And, and regardless if, if Jesus did explain the specifics, the disciples were always slow to understand anyways. But the more central point here, nice and early in our text, is those words. Follow me. 
And the more I, I'm not sure where everyone's at today, but the more I, I talk to people, and I filled in at like five different churches now, the more I realize there are so many of us that are just hanging on by a thread. And whether it's our health, it's our, it's our marriages, it's our friendship, unanswered prayers, job situations, and I hope you will come to see that this Jesus this morning, he's walking into the mess of our lives as well, and he has these same words. These are the words that we need to hear from him this morning. Follow me. Those are the words. That's, that's always the way it's been with Jesus. You may remember the woman at the well, familiar story. Jesus didn't actually stumble upon that woman. No, he had an appointment with that woman. He knew where he was going. And you can read that in in John chapter 4, the very end of that dialogue. We're not going to go through it. What we see those words at the end of that dialogue, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Woman, this world, those five different husbands, the shiny toys of this world, none of it's going to help you. Stop. Follow me. Follow Christ. That's what's going on here in this text. In Matthew, we see it again in Matthew chapter 8, verses 34 through 35, another familiar text. And you may remember it, and it says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to him, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and do what? And follow me. It was not uncommon for Jesus to tell people to follow him, and, and they just didn't listen. They wouldn't go. In Matthew 8, 21, uh, a would-be disciple goes up to Jesus, and, and Jesus, and, and he says, verses, uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And I, I read that text and I looked that up and I was like, what's going on there? One, of the, one Old Testament scholar, Leon Morris, he said that what this would-be disciple was actually saying is, someday, after my father has died, I will follow you. That's what he's actually saying. It was clear that the man was insisting on a delay before he took his place with Jesus. But Jesus in our text this morning, he tells Philip to follow him. And Philip follows Jesus. And Philip goes in search of his friend. Back in our text in verses 44. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Bethsaida was a fishing village on the shores of the northern shore of Galilee. In verses 45 Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Notice here that Philip is found by Jesus, and then Philip goes to find Nathanael, right? And notice what Philip says. We have found the one, right? And as I was reading through this text, I thought, hmm, wait a minute, Philip, you didn't find anyone. One commentary notes that it's interesting to ask the question, who really finds whom? Like, Philip claims that he found Jesus, and yes, in some sense, maybe he did, but in actuality, Jesus found him. Philip claims he found Jesus, right? But Jesus found him. 
I often hear Christians say that they have, they have found Jesus. In some sense, maybe they have. But the reality is, is that Jesus finds you. God is doing the calling. Remember, it was not Jesus who was lost. It was all of us. Jesus throughout, the, Jesus, throughout the whole ministry, he just continues to show how purposeful he is, how in control he is. And when I hear about people losing their salvation, I'm like, that's nonsense. Jesus found you. If he broke through to you with his Holy Spirit, he's never letting you go. You were lost. He wasn't. So Jesus doesn't stumble onto these men haphazardly. He has an appointment with these men, right? Jesus makes an appointment with every one of you, and he says, follow me, follow me. It may seem random. It may seem haphazard. I get that. From our perspective, it seems super random. I, I, I met a guy recently, and uh, he said, tomorrow I'm going to church. And I was like, I'm going to church. Wow, this guy? And I said, okay. And he said, so I got to the end of the conversation, and what I found out was that he told me he was going to a church. It was a gospel-preaching church, and when I asked him why, he said it was because a really cute girl invited me to church. And I said, can God really do that? Can he use a cute girl? Can he use a cute girl's invitation to get a guy to church on Sunday? I'm getting a point over there. Absolutely he can. Absolutely. God can do that. It seems so random or haphazard, but that's how, he, that's how he works. So we have Nathaniel and we have Philip, just seemingly average fishermen, right? Just average Joes. But God delights in using average people, doesn't he? People, but by the world standards, are ordinary, right? They're, they're just average. And God uses them to turn the world upside down. Paul makes note of this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, he says, uh, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. None of us can boast. Now look closely at verses 46 in your text in front of you. Nathanael says, said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Now here is Nathanael, and he hears this news from Philip, his buddy, his friend. We have you got to hear this. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Here's what he's saying. We have found the Messiah. That's what he's saying. What is the response from Nathaniel? Is it utter joy? Is it utter amazement? I mean, they've been waiting for such a long time, from Moses till now, right? Nathaniel says in verses 46, can anything good come from Nazareth? What? What's going on there, Nathaniel? There must have been a certain amount of excitement in Philip's voice. We, we have found the Messiah, and the best you can do is, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, this statement by Nathaniel hit me like a brick to the face. Something is going on in the mind of Nathaniel to make a statement like that. He doesn't say, well, you know, the Messiah, according to the, the scriptures, comes from Bethlehem not Nazareth. In Micah 5, 2, Micah is that little book next to Jonah. In Micah 5, 2, it does say, Behold you, Bethlehem, right, Epaphrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me, one who will be a ruler over Israel. He could have said that. But we, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, 
He ended up in Nazareth because of a dream that his father had, so he moved to Nazareth, uh, Matthew 2, 19. But Nathaniel didn't say that. He said, he said um, and anything good, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's a good question to ask. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, I don't know exactly why he said these words. I'll suggest two reasons I'm speculating here. I don't know, and it's not my job to know, but maybe Nathaniel had some expectations that were just different than a Jesus from Nazareth. It's just not how he saw it going down. Like, John the Baptist was guilty of this. Like, he got stuck in jail. Things were not going as planned. He was about to die. And he sent, some mess- he sent messengers to Jesus, and he asked, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah who was to come? Or should we look for someone else? Like, Jesus, I'm confused. Uh, I'm John the Baptist, and I'm in jail. What's going on here? This is not the way I saw it going down. This isn't going as planned. My plan. That's one potential scenario. There also could be some prejudice going on. John MacArthur will lean this way. He'll say that Nathaniel's got some prejudice going on here, possibly. He said, he said the way that we'll explain this is by looking at some of the prejudice on the, cur- on the ground currently. John 750, we have a scene with the religious establishment where Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus earlier, it says here, it says here, he was one of their own number, Nicodemus, and he asked, he asked the Pharisees this, Nicodemus, he says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Now, so here is Nicodemus trying to tell the Pharisees they may need to reevaluate their preconceived uh, beliefs about Jesus. And what happens to Nicodemus? He was shut down. The Pharisees were unable to accept the fact that it is possible that a prophet, um, never mind the Messiah, could come out of Galilee. So the Pharisees had this tendency, this bias, this, pre- this prejudice, this preconception um, about, this, uh, about Galilee. It was a blind spot in their thinking. Absolutely. Now, how does that help us? Well, Galilee is a region that contained Nazareth. And you could say of Nazareth as being located in the southern part of Galilee. So to say something negative about Galilee is also to say something negative about Nazareth. So it's possible that, that what the, what the prejudice by the Pharisees is just simply echoed by Nathaniel. It's a possibility. One commentator uh, writes that it's unclear whether that Nathaniel's question represents a rivalry between Cana and Nazareth, or merely that, and this is, what, this is where I stand, that, that Nazareth was categorized as just the wrong side of the tracks. So so far as Nathaniel was concerned, the Messiah and Nazareth should hardly belong in the same sentence. That's what's going on. So, so what's, what's wrong with Nathaniel? We don't know. And, and I can't solve that question, but it's quite possible that Nath- Nazareth is just simply the wrong side of the tracks. We all know towns like this. You know, someone comes into Lakeville. Oh, you know, what do you think about living in Lakeville? Oh, it's a great idea. You should live in Lakeville. But don't live over there. That's just the wrong section. That's the wrong side of the tracks, right? As far as Nathaniel was concerned, the Messiah Nazareth, they shouldn't be in the same sentence. And MacArthur, he says here that Nazareth was a rough town. It was, its culture was unrefined. It was uneducated. It isn't a particularly picturesque place. It was, it was less memorable then than it is today. 
Um, and the Judeans looked down on all the Galileans. They looked down on them. But the Galileans, they looked down on the Nazarenes. So Nathaniel, though he, he came from an even more lowly village, was simply echoing the Galileans' general contempt for Nazareth. So two things uh, about his comment, two things. First is that there are some tendencies, if that was the case, and there are some tendencies that we must say that are good, that we, we have to do. Let's say that in the south, I'm just making this up now. Let's say that in the south section of Lakeville, there's a crime rate that's just off the charts. I know that's not the case in Lakeville, okay? I know that's not the case. But let's just say that in the south section of Lakeville, there's the crime rates are off the charts, right? And uh, I, I'm from the Springfield area. We can say that about where I'm from, but that's probably not the case here. But and, and one day, you're, you're talking about your son. He's got a basketball game later today, and you're like, all right, well, you know, um, you know when you get out of your car, you know, you make sure that you go with a friend, keep your eyes open, lock the doors, uh, stay in a well-lit area. Those are wise words based on your understanding of that side of the tracks. Fine. Um, Your tendency will keep him safe. That's your plan. Your general understanding of that area is good. A tendency to eat healthy. Those are good things, right? Um, I tend to believe that's not what's going on here with Nathaniel. That's not what's going on. Uh, That's not what Nathaniel's referring to. I tend to believe that, that, that there are some biases that are bad as well. And I think that they produce blind spots in our life, in our walk, in our witness. I tend to believe that Nathaniel fits better into that category. Nathaniel knows something about Nazareth, and that something clouds his ability to see anything good coming out of Nazareth. You see, back in that Lakeville example, there are, there are people in those sections of Lakeville that, who desperately need the gospel. Desperately. And there are people who would benefit greatly from someone over here walking over to that side of the tracks and offering some assistance to the glory of God. It's a fictitious example, but you guys get my point. Now, these verses have very practical implications on us that we can put our fingers on this morning. You see, I I want you to see that Nathaniel is not alone when he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? He's not alone. Not only is he not alone, not only does he have blind spots, but we often have blind spots as well. You know, we have these, these blind spots that need to be killed. Now, we don't have a Nazareth to comment about, but in many ways, we will often think as Nazareth did. Our world, the way we're raised, our interpretive traditions are, cause us to carry these tendencies. Sadly, they can influence the way that we share the gospel. Maybe uh, as a kid, you heard continued negative derogatory statements. I'm making this up about, your, about, about a certain ethnic community. You heard how unworthy they, unworthy they are. And that affects you now. Maybe you're like me and you were raised by someone who works 70 plus hours a week and now that affects the way you view lazy people. Let me ask you, are lazy people, are illegal immigrants, are atheists, are Muslims, is any of them less worthy of the grace of God? No. Because we are all sinners. We are all on the wrong side of the tracks. None of us stand a chance without Jesus Christ in our life. None of us. And let me tell you, I am the worst of sinners. And, and we can't stand here like Nathaniel and simply say, Nazareth, does anything good come from there? We must say like Philip, come and see, come and see. I started with that story of the taxi driver Imelda. Well, there's more. The next day, we waited at the gate for our, of our fancy resort for Imelda, and she picked us up. 
9.15. And this time, we were not alone in the taxi bus. No, there were other people there. But these other people were not just random tourists. These other people were her family. And so it was Imelda's daughter. It was her grandchildren. So my wife, Jessica, my son, Caleb, and my daughter, Hope, would be allowed now to sit with Imelda's family. She welcomed us into her family. We, I mean, who, she didn't know who we were. We could have been Catholics, for goodness sake. You know, no. so I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, Catholics. I'm kidding. And so, and, 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 and to Imelda, this just seemed so natural to her to allow us to spend time with her family, even if only for a car ride. She brought us into her family. That's great. Now, if you look at Imelda and you look at my family, whoo, man, we, we could not look at any different. Um, she was proud of her Antiguan history. Her roots ran deep in that country, and yet it didn't matter. I wasn't a random tourist to her. It was, I was more than that. I was a family on the other side of the track who was in need of a church. And, and there was a sense that Imelda said, come with me, I will show you my Jesus. And, and oh, that we would be ch- a church that week in and week out, we would say, come with me, I will show you my Jesus. That's what Philip said, come and see. And I don't know for sure if Nathaniel's comment is based in prejudice, I don't know that, but maybe if it was, it was a real blind spot in his understanding. It was a blind spot. Or maybe it was like John the Baptist, things just weren't working out as he expected them to work out. But his comment, and you'll see it, his comment would soon come face to face with the Messiah himself. He would soon realize that he would need to submit his comment, his understanding, to the foot of the cross. Back in our text this morning, if you have your your Bible in front of you, verse 46b, Philip, Philip responds to Nathaniel's comment by simply saying, Come and see. Come and see. Philip likely knows, Philip knows why Nathaniel made that comment. These words, come and see, would challenge. They would challenge Nathaniel's thoughts, and these words would serve as an invitation to us as well. Come and see. Come and see. But do more than just come and see. Drink deeply in the saving relationship offered by the Messiah. Come and see the reason for your existence. The woman at the well, she, man, she went there every day. Every day, the same thing, every day, hundreds of times. And then she came face to face with Jesus. And there was a sense that Jesus said, I know you, I know you. Stop wasting your time on that path called the pointless life. Come and see. Revelations 3.20, it states, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Christ comes to the door of sinners and he knocks. Your response should never be nothing good comes from Nazareth, but your response should be, yes, I will come and see this Jesus. Why do we come to church? Why do we pick up our Bibles? It's so we would see more and more and more of this Jesus. Back in our text, if you have your Bible still open in front of you, we're in verses 47. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. What is it about Nathaniel that allows Jesus to respond in such a way? He wouldn't respond about that. wouldn't say that about me. John Gill notes that Nathaniel is an honest, 
John Gill, if you're looking for a good commentator, I like John Gill. He knows that Nathaniel's an honest, plain-hearted man. He was an Israelite at heart, which was a rare thing at that time. And, and it's interesting. Gill states that, that he was an Israelite at heart, inwardly, uh, not inwardly, inwardly um, after the Spirit. Uh, of the course of Nathaniel's life then was, was likely with great integrity. It was upright, uh, without any prevailing hypocrisy, without any deceit, either to God or to men. Now, many of the Pharisees, when they would come along, um, so many of them would come along for no other reason than to convict Jesus, to catch him in his words somehow. But that's not why Nathaniel's here today. The way Jesus greets Nathaniel says so much about Nathaniel. Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, those are just wonderful words for Jesus to say about Nathaniel. Jesus was not referring to Nathaniel's physical descent um, from Abraham. He's not talking about genetics here. That's not what's going on. He was linking Nathaniel's status as a true Israelite to the fact that he was without deceit. This is what defined him as that true Israelite. For the most part, the Israelites of Jesus' day, they weren't real, but they were hypocrites. They were phonies. They lived life with this outward uh, veneer, this outward uh, appearance of spirituality, but it wasn't real. And therefore, they were not genuine spiritual children of Abraham. Nathaniel, however, was real. And Paul notes, Paul says that there's a type of Jew who is one inwardly. And this person is approved of. And, and that's the thrust of what's going on here. In Romans 2.28, Paul says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In our text, Nathaniel, in verses 48, he said, How do you know me? It's a good question. How do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That puts a whole different spin on things. In the mind of Nathaniel now, Jesus has gone from possibly being on the wrong side of the tracks, right, to realizing that he now stands in the presence of the Messiah himself. The woman at the well, remember her, she says, she, Jesus said to her, I am he. This is Nathaniel's woman at the well experience. Nathaniel stands in front of the one who is omniscient. He stands in front of the one who is all-knowing. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus, this same Jesus, is alive and he is well. And he died on the cross and he took your place. For, and he paid for the sins of all those who would turn and trust in him. For those, that, for those that, that place their trust in him, he is with you all the time. He's with you at that doctor's office appointment. He's with you at the job. Every time you open your mouth and cry out to him, he is with you. Listen to that verse. Before Philip calls you when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Always has been. And Nathaniel now knows it. Nathaniel had waited so long for this. Remember that statement by Philip. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's like 1,600 years between the time of Moses and Jesus. 
Nathaniel may have spent much time thinking about the Messiah. Maybe him and his buddy Philip stayed up late at night just wondering, you know, maybe, maybe this will be the year. And here the Messiah is standing right in front of him. And Jesus says, I know you. I saw you. I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And he's not some sort of spy spying around fig trees. No, he knew he was there. So what do you think, what do you think Nathaniel was doing when he was under that fig tree? What do you think he was doing? And how does that relate to our lives? Well, my own belief about Nathaniel is that he was resting, he was meditating, praying, he was reflecting on life. I say this because he couldn't have been doing something that was deceitful under that fig tree. If he was doing something deceitful under that fig tree, Jesus couldn't have said, this is an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. He couldn't have said that. And he was likely under that fig tree doing something worthy. He was not scrolling through social media. Sorry, guys. He was not taking selfies with the figs. He's not doing that. No, <laughs> he was probably praying. He was probably praying, reading the law or something that matched his upright character. Remember, Jesus says, here, here's a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit. God is omniscient. He knows our heart. He knows my heart. He knows your heart as well. He knows when I'm seriously trying to commune with him. And he knows when you are as well. But he also know when, knows when we're just faking it. He knows that. And this text brings us face to face with the importance of spending time under the fig tree in your own life with God. If you live in New England, it won't be a fig tree. But um, it, it, brings us, it, it brings us face to face with the importance of spending time with God. Now, we can speculate on whether or not Nathaniel was doing something good under the fig tree. But, but still, Nathaniel has a hurdle. He's got some hurdles to overcome. And, and the, point that is, is, the point here is not for me to tell you to be like Nathaniel. I actually don't like when people do that. You know, fathers tell their sons, be like Abraham. And then if, if their son's anything like my son, he's like, uh, Abraham told his wife to uh, be his sister, Dad. Um, you can't, you know. So, no, we got Jesus is the best, the best um, representation we have of the Bible. We don't need to tell people to be like Nathaniel when we have Jesus there in front of us, right? And so, so but there is one thing about Nathaniel that we can do, that we like. Uh, we can respond like he does when he comes face to face with the Christ. W will he look, will Nathaniel look at his lifetime of, of good deeds? Will he look at his lifetime of righteous deeds, right? His many hours under the fig tree and, and, and think that maybe, you know, because of all my time under that fig tree, maybe I deserve a seat at the table. Or, or, or will he simply cast, cast himself at the mercy of the cross, at the mercy of Jesus. You see, there is likely the possibility that at the end of verses 47, Nathaniel is still speculating. He's still calculating in his mind whether or not this Jesus is the true Messiah. Up to this point, verses 47, we know that Nathaniel, he's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. We know that. Maybe he's done a lot of good things in his life, really just followed the rules. And you see, all of our lives, we can do that. We can let our, our parents drag us to church. We can check all the boxes. We can play, play the right cards. We can study hard, invest well. But what really matters is, is where we stand with Christ that is the hurdle that Nathaniel has to get over this morning. He has to get over that hurdle. And in verses 49, you got to see it. Verses 49, he just gets it right. It reads, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. 
You are the king of Israel. Those are some amazing words. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And all of us can look at that verse and see it for ourselves. The only way, the only way we avoid the wrath of God is because of this God-man standing there in front of Nathaniel. It's the only way. Think back to the Old Testament with me. According to Greg Beale, uh, Adam was supposed to be our prophet and our priest and our king, and there was an act of treason in the garden. And then we, are, we learned that our first priest failed. And then God graciously raised up another one. His name was Abraham. He was supposed to be our prophet and our priest and our king. And then as you read through the Old Testament, what we see is nothing but failure. But we see something else. We see the seed of Jesus being carried along through the whole story. And you get to, you get to the book of Matthew, and you see that, that line there, and we say, wow, God is awesome. He's awesome. And now standing in front of Jesus is, now standing in front of Nathaniel is this Jesus, the promised Messiah, the one he's been waiting for, the one we've been waiting for. And, and, and back in our text in verses 50, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And we know this to be true. We weren't there for, but we have, we have records of this. It says here, um, all of the things that Jesus did are proof positive to who he is. Changing water into wine, right? Not a, not, no one can do that. Jesus cure, curing the nobleman, right? The great haul of fish in Luke chapter 5. Jesus casting out unclean spirits. Lepers healed. Fevers broken. We could use this guy in the hospital. Fevers broken. The windows, the widow's son raised from the dead. Who raises sons from the dead? Who does that? Jesus does. The stilling of the storm. We're not done yet. The opening of the eyes of the blind man. The feeding of the 5,000. He saw some things. And then, when you think that's enough, you get to the end of John chapter, uh, chapter 21, verses 25. And the writer John says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written which means that there were many other events that you guys don't know about that weren't recorded for you. Philip would no doubt see greater things. Now, I have not seen a lot of these miracles myself, but I have seen others. others. Every time I would help someone into the baptismal pool to be baptized, I realized there was a miracle that took, that, took to get that person into that baptismal pool. It was a miracle. And I hear some of these stories, and it, it, it takes nothing short of a miracle to break the heart of a sinner and bring him to God. And God doesn't add goodness to your already good self. No, no, no. You and I are sinners, and our sin need to be paid for on a cross. And Christ had to make us alive in him, and it's through him and in him that we have life. Back in our text Verses 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The imagery here is drawing back to Genesis 28. Uh, In Genesis 28, verses 10 through 17, or in verses 12, we see Jacob there, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And in Genesis 28, 12, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And then in verse 14 of Genesis 28, it says, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And then, and then we get down to verses 15. It says, 
He says, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Talking about this gate here. And the text is a little technical, and we leaned on Calvin this morning. And, and, and I believe the takeaway point is, it is Christ alone who joins heaven to earth. To earth. It's a symbolic reference here by Christ. Christ alone is the mediator, mediator reaching from heaven to earth. It is Christ through whom the fullness of all the heavenly gifts flow down through us and to us, whom on, we, we, only, we only ascend through Christ. And Calvin notes, Christ shows himself to us as friendly, as gentle, and he makes known to us his, by his descent that heaven is open to us and the angels are made our companions. With them we have brotherly communion. Because Christ took his place on earth, Christ defeated death and stands as our mediator. We are doomed, and we cannot place a foot on that ladder that he talks about unless we do so in Christ. It is through Christ we climb. And I just want to go back now and just say a few things about this whole story. Nathaniel went into this interaction with the mindset of, does anything good come from Nazareth? He had a presupposition, a bias, a prejudice, a misunderstanding, if you call it, about the ability of anything good to come from Nazareth. And, and his beliefs are confronted with the God-man Jesus himself. Now, Jesus doesn't defend his hometown. He doesn't argue with Nathaniel about the legitimacy of his own ministry. He doesn't do that. He simply says, Nathaniel... I know you. I know you. Nathaniel's beliefs about Nazareth are turned upside down. And this relates to us today. I can't assume that everyone here in this room knows Jesus. I can never assume that. Maybe you wandered in here through some seemingly random course of events, and you sit here today like Nathaniel, and you say, and you say, Jesus, does anything good come from that man? Right? And maybe you wandered in here, and, and maybe you have doubts, and maybe you have presuppositions, and maybe you have tendencies about Jesus, and you find yourself sitting here and you're listening to a sermon on John chapter 1. Well, if that's, if that's you, I'll tell you a little story. I grew up in the 80s, and who here remembers the 80s? Uh, no one raised their hand, clearly. Um, so, well, let me jog your memory. Here we go. Uh, Garbage Pail Kids, Mario Brothers, Alf. E.T., Reading Rainbow, He-Man and She-Ra, Rainbow Bright. Should I stop there? One more, Fraggle Rock. Um, some of you can probably still sing those Fraggle Rock songs. So here's the thing. I grew up in the 80s, and I was, I was of a family of six. My dad was a truck driver. There was never any money. For, for me, church was just this place that I would go to. I would get dragged to on a Sunday morning. And guess what? He, I had no relationship with Christ. I mean, I sang the songs, Right? Jesus loves you, amazing grace. But then I grew up, and like many others, went my own way. But guess what? It didn't work. It never does. I struggled through college like a kid who's lost his way. I walked through life with no purpose, right? But then one day I was sitting in a chair, like the one you're sitting in, and some pastor in the cape was in, was in the front of the church, and he was talking about this man that, Nazareth, that, that Nathaniel just met, and his name was Jesus. And the Bible says, it tells us that the wages of sin, the wages of sin is death. That's what it says. The payment for sin is death. Death is exactly what it says it is. It's forever separation from God. You don't get to pass go. And here, if I were to stop that message right here, you, would think, you may think, man, I've lost it, right? I'm done. 
I guess there's no hope for me because I've sinned before, I sinned this morning, and I'll sin in the future. Well, I have amazing news for you. So simple, but so life-changing. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. To you, I simply say like Philip, come and see. I invite you into the gospel message, to the good news that Jesus has died for your sins, past, present, and future. If you will only repent and trust and believe unto him for your salvation. Let's pray. You, Lord, are the sovereign author of all good, whether natural or spiritual. We thank you, Lord, for the gifts for which you've given us in Christ, Lord. The gospel message, Lord, isn't just for the unbeliever. The gospel message is for us, the Christian. We need to hear it every day. We need to preach it to ourselves. Gifts, well, Lord, you've given us gifts that we don't even deserve, Lord. But, but our, our souls are often in shambles before us. And we consider how little, Lord, often we have put our gifts to good use. We have often been careless, and the result has been barren wilderness instead of fruitful field, Lord. But Lord, you have forgotten the debt of, of 10,000 talents. We worship and adore you for this. Please, ex- please accept our renewed surrender to you. We submit ourselves and all that we have to serve you. Make us fruitful, faithful servants. And the end, after we have run the course you have set out for us, Lord, let us die at your feet, worshiping you with humility and gratitude. And it is your name I pray. Amen.